Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, Thursday morning, running around from doctor's appointment to doctor's appointment. Let me uh, do something a little uh, unusual. Uh, Daniel Drapkin, who I had as a student many decades ago, that wrote to ask uh, the sponsor a uh, talk on something weird, bizarre, which piqued my interest. Uh, again, it's Daniel Drabkin, and his family's originally from Mogilev in Belarus, and uh, therefore, I think all the Drabkins or the ones he lo- knows of come from there, so they're all related somehow or other, and that would mean he's descended or related or something to something that will probably surprise most listeners to the podcast, and that is to one of the most prominent reform rabbis in Russia, in Tsarist Russia in the 1800s. So I didn't do, I think I did once, who was the guy, uh, Freehoff. So I usually don't do reform rabbis, but this, like I say, because Daniel and I go back a long way, and second of all, it piqued my interest, and this is probably something no one has any idea about. So I want to say a few words about his, shall we say, distinguished ancestor, or whatever, Lush and Saginaw, um, because it's, a, it's a, a side of life I don't think most people are familiar with. I'll say it again. We're talking about Reformed Judaism in Eastern Europe, specifically in the Russian Empire, in Poland and Russia and Lithuania and those kind of places, which most people, I'm sure, think today, what are you talking about? Reformed Judaism, that's in Germany, that's America, maybe another couple of Western places, things like that. Uh, but when you get to Eastern Europe, is you know... It was one or the other, like Israel today. Either you're Chiloni or you're Orthodox, to one degree or another. Well, that's usually the way we think about it, and to some degree it's true. That the way modernity uh, expressed itself when it hit Eastern Europe, so, um, it, but, and by the time it hit Eastern Europe, by and large, it was post-religious. Now, what I'm trying to get at is this. There's different ways of being from and not from. Now, let's specifically talk about how to be not from. One way is to say, I want to be religious, but I don't want Orthodox Judaism. I want a different variety. Like 39 flavors, you know, whatever they call it. I want a different flavor. Reform, conservative, reconstruction, call it what you want. So this is a different form of the Jewish religion. That's one way. Now, the other way is to say like this. All religion is baloney. God does not exist. All the, the Torah is not true. Therefore, I have nothing, you know, it's, it's not like I want another type of religion. I don't believe in religion, period. That's Ben-Gurion and the Chilonim and so on and so forth. Golda Meir and whatever. You understand? It's a secular. Like a scientist, for example, you know. Who showed me a uh, Charles Feynman or somebody. You know, they don't believe in nothing. It's not they're looking for a different type of Judaism. Now, history has shown in the last 150 years that from the from point of view... Well, it's complicated, but I was going to say it's better to heal a need than the other. It's it's complicated. It's not so simple. Um, but whatever the case is, you're talking about Russia. We're talking about now the 1800s in Russia, which was the Russian Empire. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. We often hear the term Russian Jews, 
But in reality, the term Russian Jews didn't exist until the 1800s, which is late. Uh, there was once a, an empire called Russia, which is very, very old. But they had zero Jews in it as a matter of policy. The old Tsarist Russia would not allow a single Jew in. And again, I've spoken <coughs> about that in the past. Even Peter the Great and all that wouldn't allow any Jews in. Okay. Then, something funny happened, which was that the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Empire, in the middle and late 1700s under Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, uh, gobbled up Poland, the old kingdom of Poland that I've spoken about many times. The old kingdom of Poland, which once existed, included Poland and Belarus and Ukraine and Lithuania and Latvia. So Catherine the Great gobbled up Lithuania and Latvia and Belarus and Ukraine, which is a lot. In the beginning, she didn't take over the Poland part. But by the time the dust clears after the Napoleonic Wars, by the time you get to 1815 and Congress of Vienna, Russia even gets the Poland part, most of it. So a city like Warsaw, for example, which is in the very heart of Poland, was part of Tsarist Russia until the end of the First World War. So that means, for the first time in history, this empire called Russia, which didn't want even a single Jew inside, found itself, you know, sort of like, <laughs> was it the other day? Someone who, who swallowed up, what I see in the paper, did you see this? Uh, a porcupine. <laughs> it was a snake that, that swallowed a porcupine and died. Uh, I think it was in the Israeli paper or something like that. So that's what happened with Russia. They swallowed up so many Jews because when they acquired Ukraine and Belarus and Lithuania, all the rest of it, as a booby prize, they got all these Jews. And not only quantitatively, but qualitatively, they got the most Jewish Jews in the world. The Yiddish-speaking, that's when Hasidus was rising, and the Litvish and so forth, I mean the most Jewish Jews. <clears throat> the Russian Empire, under the Tsars, being very anally um, bureaucratic, didn't want to have a live-and-let-live kind of policy. And to the degree that they were able to, they wanted to Russianize all the Jews. Meaning, exactly what Putin is trying to do today in Ukraine which is not kill the Ukrainians, but say, change your self-identification. Notice I want you to change the way you think about yourselves. And instead of regarding yourselves as Ukrainians, I want you to think of yourselves as Russians. And the Tsarist Russian government, to the degree that it was able in the 1800s, basically indicated to the Jews, the millions and millions of Jews, who, by the way, quintupled in the 1800s, so, um, don't think of yourselves as Jews. We're not going to kill you. Don't think of yourselves as Jews. Think of yourselves as Russian. Now, the best option from the point of view of the Tsarist Russian government is think of yourselves as Russian. That you convert to Christianity. That's the best. So we didn't kill you or hurt you physically. But we got you to change the way you think about yourself. Um, this worked to a very limited extent. There were a number of Jews who converted. But Ruba de Rub of the millions who were constantly increasing because they had a baby boom, didn't do that. Now, I'll repeat. The Jews lived in the parts of the old kingdom of Poland that Russia had swallowed up. Russia did not allow those Jews, by and large, to move into Russia Mamish. So, again, today it's easier for me to give this talk than it would have been years ago. 
because you know what the USSR was around, because the map reflects what I'm about to say. There's a place called Russia. There's another place called Belarus and another place called Ukraine. So Russia starts where it starts. The parts that is, Jews were not allowed to live in that part called Russia. From the borders of Russia and Ukraine and so forth, all the way to Siberia and the Pacific Ocean. They weren't allowed to, 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 to live there. With a few exceptions, if you're richy rich. On the other hand, the Jews lived buckets and buckets of them in what you today would call Ukraine and Belarus and, you know, and, and Lithuania and Latvia. And, of course, Poland itself was teeming with Jews, constantly growing population. So the Russians, let's put it this way, did these Jews, they were a peculiar problem for the Russian government. That's why it's really an interesting subject. Um, I don't know how long it will take me to explain all this, but who cares? He says, it's an interesting subject. If you're the Russian government in the 1800s, so you they're not Russian. You know, the Jews never had any experience of speaking Russian. The Jews had lived in Ukraine and Belarus and Lithuania and Latvia. The MS is that most Jews didn't even speak those languages. In fact, even the Goyim didn't speak those languages. A specific language called Ukrainian or Lithuanian, take it from me. But to the degree that there was any kind of high culture language, when the Jews lived in the old kingdom of Poland, would be Polish, <clears throat> understandably. So the well-to-do and those who had, uh, you know, uh, contacts with the big Goyim and so forth, you know, could speak Polish or maybe German. But you know and I know among themselves the Jews all spoke Yiddish. So they were a large minority concentrated in Ukraine, Belarus, and uh, Lithuania, Latvia, and Poland with their own distinct language and obviously their own distinct religious culture. So they weren't Ukrainians, they weren't Belarusians, they weren't Polish. Now, the Russian government in the 1800s did its best to brainwash the Goyim too. So they, they had a, war, a culture war against Ukrainian, against Lithuanian, even against Polish eventually, and so forth. So you weren't allowed to have schools in those languages. And that's a whole Pasha by itself. Um, that's why everybody hates each other in Eastern Europe. Uh, so they had their problem with that. But the Jews are an unusual group in that the Jews haven't picked up one of the local languages. It's not like the Jews are addicted to speaking Polish or Lithuanian or something like that. The Jews have their own thing called Yiddish, which to the Russians wasn't even a language. It's just a, a, a dialect. So this is the background. Now, the uh, it's, it's very, very interesting, actually. So one of the things the Russians tried to do in the 1800s was to Russianize everybody in the conquered territories. But I'm going to direct my attention specifically to the Jews, obviously. And one of the things they wanted to do was Russianize the Jews. The full Russianization would be conversion to Christianity. The Bidyevit option was at least let them become self-identified as Russians, let them talk Russian, study Russian in school, consider them part of the Russian culture. And I figure, to them, another generation or two or three, and they'll all be going anyway, which wasn't false. Okay? So it's a very interesting kind of uh, uh, historical background, at least to me. Now, um, that's one thing to keep in mind. 
So if we talk about Russian Jews, that's a newly created Zach that started in relatively small numbers in the 1800s, picked up as time went on little by little in the 18 and early 1900s, and then accelerated under the communists when you had to speak Russian. Okay, I mean, that makes sense. So today we talk about Russian Jews. Really, 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 they're not Russian. You know, get what I'm saying? If you go back a couple generations, they're from the old kingdom of Poland. They're from Lithuania, from Ukraine, from Belarus, wherever they survived in the war. So it's a mishmash. Uh, so, you know, I have friends that are in Kiev and all the rest of it. They got to know, and the Drapkins too. He said they got to know the Russian, but it's not really native to the Jews. Hold that thought. Now, another part. One of the interesting things about the 1800s that we know in history is that this was the century in which the middle class came to dominate everything. It's the great century of the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie is the French term for the middle class, particularly the middle and upper middle class. Okay? Throughout history, it used to be in Europe that the uh, class of people that counted was the aristocracy. Those are the ones who laid the fashions. Those are the ones who uh, had the artistic taste. Those are the ones who controlled the governments. Uh, everybody else was under them. They're the ones who live in the big fancy houses and the palaces and all junk. And everybody else was under them. Depending on the country, the people under them were either their slaves or something else. Here's what it is. And the aristocracy was clever enough that if anybody from the middle class became a richy rich they would make him a nobleman and, and join him to the aristocracy. That was a, a smart move on the part of the European aristocracy and monarchies, and it worked for a long time. However, by the 1800s, and I, I can't go into this too much in the context of one podcast, this is more like for a lecture somewhere. Uh, in the 1800s, with the new economy called the Industrial Revolution and the capitalism and the new technologies that started to be produced and things like this, so the class of people that emerged as the dominant group was the middle class, especially the middle and, and upper middle class. And there were political changes that reflected this, such as constitutional government, which, which in effect gave power to the middle class in each country in a different way, but nevertheless it happened. And if you want a, a, a similar dover, uh, before the 1800s, everybody who could tried to dress like a nobleman, if you could. With the jewelry and all this other shtick, you know, and the, and the colorful uniforms and whatever. And uh, it's interesting, you know, somebody who had aspirations for godless would try to imitate as much as possible the aristocracy. Including, may I say, the Jews. This was always a cause of anti-Semitism, whatever. The Jewish women dressed like princesses if they could, duchesses. The Jewish men sometimes showed off, you know, Masha'en came to 1800s, it's the other way around. All of a sudden, the kings and the nobles are dressed like a middle class. <laughs> it's interesting. Go take a look online at Queen Victoria and her husband, or the king of France, Louis Philippe, or people like that, and they're dressed like a middle class. You understand? No, this was the dominant, you know, in a, it, without fancy uniforms or anything like this. This became the sober dominant uh, reality. And this group because they started to succeed in business and made a lot of money, like the Rothschilds and all this. So they, you know, became very powerful as a result of capitalism, and they wanted to throw their weight around 
and that their sensibilities should be the one to dominate the cultures. This happened by the Christians, and it also happened by the Jews. This is one of the main reasons people don't realize for the rise of what you and I would call Reform Judaism, for example. And there it gets to our story. Uh, did you ever ask yourselves, how come, until the 1800s, there was no kind of push to reform the services, there was synagogue, a choir, uh, organ, all that kind of stuff. It never hit till the 1800s. All of a sudden, everybody came not from. It was a push it. The main impetus, and I just spoke about this a little bit the other day in Lakewood, actually, at, at someone's house. He says, the uh, the main impetus was the rising uh, uh, powerful, financially powerful uh, class of the middle class and the upper middle class. And uh, the middle class, the bourgeoisie has its, its own um, mores. Uh, you know, they don't need necessarily to live in a gigantic palace, uh, but they want modern bathrooms, you know, and they want to, you know, the air conditioning to work, as we say today. You know, they want their creature comforts of a certain type. Uh, and uh, a big characteristic of the middle class, especially in the 1800s, and remember, we're talking about what you were, depending whether you're conservative or, or, or a liberal, was the good old days or the bad old days, when, um, since the middle class dominated the societies increasingly, there were low taxes and no social welfare programs. D does that make sense? There was no such thing as um, Social Security, unemployment insurance, you know, all the, you know, uh, uh, Medicare, any of that kind of business. Because that's antithetical to the interests of middle class. The middle class person, especially the upper middle class person, I guess, I pay for everything myself. You know, if I need medical, I pay for medical. You don't have medical, the heck with you. You know, I put away from my old age. You don't have it, the heck with you. Why should I take from my money and then help you? That's the attitude. And from a purely, purely, purely financial point of view, this way you don't have a, a debt. What's it called? A national debt. And the money's good. And dollar's good as gold. And it's a gold standard. It's a, it's a whole set of um, attitudes and policies that reflect. That's how it was in America in the 1800s. Again, there was no social security, no unemployment insurance, no medical assistance, no nothing. You don't have any money? Heck with you. And everybody thought that's great. Who was it? Grover Cleveland, the President of the United States, during the Depression of 1893. He said, the government doesn't have to help the people. The government doesn't have to support the people. Adraba, the people have to support the government. That's from Grover Cleveland, who was a Democrat, by the way. The ideas were very different, you understand? The ideas are very different. And so, uh, it's an interesting takufa. Now, the middle class has certain aspects to it. One of it is, um, they have a, a, a strong predisposition to rationalism. And that's because uh, in business, you have to be very rational, correct? You can't say mystically, I hold this stock will do well, you know, I'm going to invest in it. That's crazy. Business is the ultimate rational zah. You calculate your risks, you know, what the profit's going to be, what the expenses are going to be, as we use the term today, bottom line. You understand? The arithmetic, the math, it governs everything. If you want to be successful in business, whatever kind of business, whether professions and banking and, and merchants or anything like that, you know, it's a, it's a very strong 
predisposition to uh, common sense and basic rationality. Ad Kedekakta runs into rationalism, in which you believe... Well, let's put it this way. Rationality can often turn into rationalism. Rationality means you make... Uh, uh, you live your life in a way that, that you know, is, is not antithetical to common sense. On the other hand, rationalism is you believe that reason is the supreme principle in the universe, which is a different thing. Now, um, here comes the clash with religion. In the 19th century, the kind of Jews I'm talking about, the middle class, they want religion, but they want a certain type of religion, uh, especially if you're Jewish. And the type of religion they're interested in is one which is very rationalistic, uh, which is very aesthetic, because the middle class cares about being clean and neat, and things should look good. And, uh, you know, they don't have bizarre and eccentric uh, uh, artist tendencies or tastes. That's for the weirdos of the aristocracy. You know, they like to see plain, solid art, literature, you know, that sort of thing. That's the, the, the mentality of the businessman and his families. And these are the guys, really, who pushed the reforms that entered Judaism in the 1800s, particularly the ones I was talking about the other day in Lakewood, it was the synagogue reforms, Synagogsordnungen, which spread all over Germany by the Orthodox the Conservative Reform. And so there's a wonderful chart, I can't describe it to you now, I, maybe I'll take it on the road, uh, where you see in this town and that town, this community, that community, they start making all these new rules and, you know, uh, decorum in the shul, choirs, uh, nothing uh, which is mystical or weird-looking, including dancing on Simcha's Torah or, or doing Kiddush Levana outside and staring at the moon, you know, things that in the 19th century seemed bizarre to them, you know, uh, or clapping out loud in a shul when a, when a chasen kala comes in, you know, it should be more like decorum, like a Protestant church, you know, uh, which was considered the standard of normalcy and uh, regular behavior. So uh, my point is, as I always say, there's two types of Reform Judaism in the 1800s, Reform A and Reform B. Reform A was pushed by the Balabatim, and Reform B was pushed by the rabbis. And Reform A preceded Reform B. And so uh, here we are in the early 1800s, 1820s, 30s, 40s, that kind of thing, 50s. And in Germany, all of a sudden, people start saying, it's not a question of looking to, to, for Hetter be Michal Shabbos. They're going to be Michal Shabbos under them, whether you like it or not. You know, I'm a, I'm a middle-class, independent businessman, and the heck with you, you can't tell me what to do in my private life. But in terms of the synagogue, you know, why do we have all this crazy stuff? There are certain prayers I look at which are, like, repulsive. You're talking to angels, or talking this or that, or it's too... Is too uh, scary, or it you know they, they didn't didn't match middle class taste. So eliminate those prayers or those or those slichas or those piyutim. And when do you need all these extra piyutim for anyway? It takes too long, and nobody really understands what you're saying in the sitter anyway. So then why don't you cut the services down in half? And why don't you do this and that and the other? And anyway, what's the story with this carbonus? Wait, who want, we want to bring back carbonus? What are you crazy? Want to shecht animals again? And anyway. When will that be in Yerushalayim? Who says we're going to Yerushalayim? You, you get, you understand what I'm saying? Avera, Gorera, Savera. But it's not pushed by any kind of ideology. That came later with the rise of Reform Judaism as a formal denomination. 
but to push by the Balabatim, uh, who don't care, they trample, you know, willing, you know, knowingly or unknowingly, they trample on the um, on the Shulchan Aruch sometimes, or, or they don't, but it, you know, almost like mindlessly, and they say, listen, you know, we can improve the synagogues by having the bim in the front. Uh, yeah, I don't care what the Ramba, you know, in other words, the, the specific halachic discourse of it is not what's interesting to them because they're not halachists. These are not guys who had a kind of a Torah education or remembered anything they learned from the beginning. They're practical. I want to go to a shoal, and then my shoal should look dignified. You understand? It should look dignified. And so, therefore, it looks more dignified if the bim is up front. Or it looks more dignified if we have a choir like the church has. And then it becomes a question. Is it a choir of Zachar or Zachar Nekeva or Yehudim or Yehudim Be'enim Yehudim? You know, that, that became, in each town, each place, these were the questions of how far you want to go. For example, I think I talked about it before. In Vienna, we were at the Stadt Temple when I was there. That was a quote-unquote reform show that was started in the 1820s. But with, the, uh, with all the stuff run by the Hassam Sofer, believe it or not, the rabbi there, Elazar Hurwitz, he um, he was a Talmud Chassam Sofer. Obviously, he couldn't tell people what to do in terms of their daily lives and the Shmir Shabbos, all the rest of it. Uh, but when it came to the synagogue, you know, they said, listen, uh, is it okay to have a sermon? Because uh, you never used to have sermons. But on the other hand, it's not against the din exactly, unless you want to say Chodeshatsim in the Torah, but so they asked the Chassam Sofer, the Chassam Sofer, well, you can have a sermon, you know, in other words, like we do in America today, you can't say ipso facto, that's, it's not the same thing as eating a ham sandwich, okay? And therefore, they made the, the sermons, even though that became the centerpiece of the of the service. What, what about a choir? So Chassam Sofer said, well, you're talking about a Zachar, Zachar Nekeva, Yehudim, any Yehudim? No, let's talk about Zachar Yehudim. All right, uh, you know, I mean, again, Provided you don't repeat the words and, you know, all that stuff. There, there's nothing wrong exactly. No, you can have a choir within the Shulchan Aruch. You see where I'm going, right? Same thing with the Bimba Bims also, to be perfectly honest. So, um, this was the pattern in the first stage of the synagogue reforms that uh, seemed bizarre to the Hamon Am of Jews but we're enchanting to the stratum of well-to-do Jews who were doing well in business in the great economy that opened up in the 1800s. Because that's what happened. With the rise of new inventions, new science, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it, the steamboat and the telegraph and, uh, you know, all the different things, the railroad. So, I mean, the economic possibilities expanded if you knew what you're doing, if you know how to take advantage of the economic uh, opportunities. Well, there were those who, Jews who did so. And so, to them, they're saying like this, if I go to synagogue, I don't go to some chassidish shtibol, you know, all that junk. I don't want to go even to a regular place where, you know, they have the endless piyutim and all the rest of it. It's boring beyond belief. Too boring. I want to go to a, a, a house of worship I feel, uh, you know, reflects my sensibilities. This phenomenon I just described was more widespread than you would imagine. And that's why I say, without going through the whole history of this, that not only did this pop up in Germany and Central Europe, 
where, of course, I know you know it did, but there were groups like this in Eastern Europe, in Hungary, in Galicia, right? The cities in Galicia, in Krakow, in, in, in Lemberg, and places like that, Tarnopol, they had what we call Horschel and choir synagogues, which means there the davening was a different order, and depending on the community, is a, depending how far to the left they went, okay? Some of these places simply said, we're going to have basic decorum, we're not going to sell the aliyahs, uh, the rabbi have a sermon, we have a choir, something like that. But not with an organ. Other places they might put in an organ. Who is it? I think uh, the, the Joshua Ayun, his brother was in, uh, in Lemberg, a rabbi in a uh, reformed temple that had an organ. You know? On Shabbos, I'm saying. And then the question becomes like this. Who's playing the organ? A Jew or a guy? You understand? Who's, who's playing the organ? Uh, it, it, you know, it got to that point. Now, I'll tell you again, there's an, a very, a very, you know, dynamic that you start with this and you end up with that. That's true. But there was a variation. So what I'm trying to tell you is this hit Poland and the Russian Empire. When I say the Russian Empire, I mean the Russian now owned all of Poland. And there were X number of places, especially in Russia, as I'll explain in a second, where the groups of the Richie Riches which would be the upper middle class, which included some, you know, serious millionaires, uh, they wanted and they got shoals and communities and things like that, which reflected their preferences. You get it? Their preferences. And the hero in today's talk, which is Abraham Drabkin, was was one of these types. Um, because That means they had to get their own kind of rabbi. And so... Specifically in Russia, if I remember correctly, it started in uh, in Odessa, which is a brand new town. Odessa more or less started in the 1800s, and Jews were a big piece of that. And uh, they got a German, and they they founded something called the Brody Shul. And Brody means that there were Jews from Brody in eastern in, in in Galicia who moved to Odessa. It's not so far away, actually. And you're talking about trade and commerce on the Black Sea, so there's a lot of money to be made over there. Without going into details. And uh, and the idea was they wanted a shul, not like a regular shul, which is you know dirty, unkempt, and uh, you know it's and, and uh, disorderly as they saw it, but the opposite, something should look like a what we call today a, a well-run modern Orthodox synagogue. Modern Orthodox in the sense that you know the the services are very decorum, even though the people aren't so so shomer mitzvahs. Uh, eventually, they brought in a a uh, a Rabbi from Germany, Schwabacher, uh, and you know he started, and it's in the 1860s already. The peak years of the Reform movement in in Russian Empire, 50s, 60s, really 70s, um, 80s, and and afterwards, and then had a funny end. And uh, this Rabbi Schwabacher, for example, introduced uh, weddings inside the shul. Um, confirmation classes for girls. You know what I mean, right? That's like a Protestant thing. Uh, sermons in German, choir. Eventually the choir had Zachar and the Keva together. Uh, eventually an organ. In the beginning, a, a, a guy played the organ. Eventually a Jew played the organ, you see. Some of the prayers were in Russian, 
like having America responsive readings. Uh, certain changes were introduced into the Siddur. This is in Russia in the 1800s, the same time as in Etziv and Sral Salantra and all the rest of it. I'm talking about a, a certain stratum within Russian Jewry, because they are Jews and they live in Russia, and they're Russian in the sense that they're identifying with Russian culture, but they're not converting. Okay? So they went like a halfway in between, and therefore you have a shoal. I mean, they had a place like this in Vilna, except that there was less uh, to the left. You know, it was a little more a little more traditional. In fact, I believe that's the shoal that's around today. When I was in Vilna for a short time, I think that's the shoal today. It's ironic, you know. The least from shoal back in the old days is the one that's around today. You know, I'm not saying it's used by the same people, but I'm just saying, I forget what it's called. Uh, and I think Chabad took it over or something like that. But uh, back in the day, that was, you know, the place if you were well-to-do or a doctor and a lawyer and you wanted to go in Shulon Shabbos, but you didn't want the regular stuff and the regular lack of aesthetics uh, didn't appeal to you. So then you went to these kind of places. And uh, and this is how, how life went on. Now, specifically... Now, no, l- let me say, yeah, Taras HaKodesh, that's what it was called, Taras HaKodesh. Uh, and, and what did they have over there? Uh, you know, instead of giving out, things we do today, instead of instead of auctioning the Aliyah, you give people cards, Cohen, Levi, Yisrael, Rish, you know, uh, Ravi, Hamishi, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, now, now the thing is a little more complex than that, because the Tsarist government obviously wanted to push this. And uh, the Tsarist government hated the from Jews, which was stupid on their part. But that, but that's what happened. If they saw from Jews, especially a rabbi of the old school, it was like a big you know uh, negative to them. Again, that was stupid on their part. But that's that's what it was. And so, in the time of Nicholas the First, the Emperor of Russia was there from eighteen twenty five eighteen fifty five. Uh, one of the things that they did was to try to change the rabbinate. They knew the Jews listened to Rabbanim. That's the quote-unquote uh, elite class in terms of the religion among the millions of the Russian and Polish Jews. But the Rabbanim come from either uh, Besmedrishes or Yeshivas, which are bastions of the old unreconstructed Judaism. And the Tsar of Russia and his advisors wanted to change that. And so they uh, set up two rabbinical seminaries. They should have Limonich Kodesh and Limonich one in Vilna and one in Zhitomir. Vilna would be for the area of Belarus, and the Zhitomir is, is in the Ukraine. And, you know, they should, and they should graduate rabbis from there, and these rabbis should serve in the communities, and these rabbis themselves, by speaking Russian and by giving sermons, all the rest, they'll make a new model of what a Jew is, what a rabbi is, all the rest of it. And that will Russianize the Hamonam. That was the general uh, idea behind it. It's very famous, the, the seminaries in, in Vilna and in Shitomir. Uh, and they had to, but, the, but, you know, but it was run by Russian Goyim, and the heads of the university of, of the institution were, were, were Christians. Uh, this is the famous story that they wanted to throw Salanter to teach Gamar and the one in Vilna. That's why he ran away. But they did have their graduates, you understand? And I've told you this before, that for the rest of the 1800s, down till the end of the Tsarist regime, the Tsarist government 
said, These Ela Rabbonecha Yisrael, Mitzrayim. These are the rabbis. If you're a Jewish community, you want a clergyman to be the chief rabbi or something like this, you have to pick somebody from these seminaries, or at least somebody that we agree to who has some kind of secular education. Some kind. High school is also good. You don't need college. Some kind. And they can either read and write in Russian or German. But to just have Yiddish and Hebrew, that's too uh, backwards. The Kehillas, for their part, resisted this, for the most part. And that's why you had two rabbis in every town, you know. There was the government rabbi, and then there was the uh, the Frum rabbi. Uh, the Kazani rabbi, as they called the crown rabbi, and the uh, the other one, the Chavni rabbi, the halachic rabbi. Like, you know, Ritzikol Chonet Spector was not the chief rabbi of Kovna. Now, he really was, but I'm just saying, officially, there was some other dude who was like a pharmacist or something like that, or maybe a graduate of one of these two uh, seminaries. And uh, and he was the official rabbi there. Now, if the guy really was a pharmacist or something like that, you know, worked at a drugstore or was, uh, you know, uh, a small-time teacher who also was the under the government chief rabbi, so he didn't do anything. But what if the guy was a rabbi? What if he went to one of these uh, seminaries? What's he do? The answer is, he's going to be rabbi of the non-from. What's child rabbi non-from? They'll have a synagogue for those type of people. And they'll run it their way. And the government will support it, see if he can't do nothing to them. If the from try to do something, this is Russia, you know, the, they'll get punished. Okay, and the idea was to push this that that this through this derech, Judaism should be reformed in Russia. Now the rabbanim, the gadolim, as they call them, fought this tooth and nail, and what they were able to do was sort of sabotage the rabbinical seminaries, meaning no, they they persuaded the parents nobody should send their kids there unless you had mamsha loser or a shmo or something like that. So therefore, the type of people that went there were you know. Uh, Losers, and uh, you know the seminaries never took off really. They did to a little bit, but really. And and in the end, in eighteen seventies, the firm were able to tell the government that these seminaries are revolutionary centers, things like this. Everybody played dirty pool over there, and the governments closed them down. But just because the governments closed them down, didn't mean that there wasn't an element in different places that wanted some kind of. I'll use the word reform Judaism, but you you understand what I'm saying in the in the sense that I'm using it. Uh, I I would go a little bit farther and say uh, I'm going a little a little comprehensive in this that in the eighteen now the key years were the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. I mean that's how it went, and uh, I would say that in the late 1860s. Some of these uh, reform guys, especially Sean O'Pirish, uh, Moshe, Lillian Bloom, and people like that, started writing articles that, you know, you need to reform the Shulchan Aruch. Literally, you need to reform the Shulchan Aruch, which freaked out the Frum. And that's when they started the Frum, first Frum newspaper, Halavonon, out of Paris, so the Russians couldn't control it. And that was a big factor in the uh, development of... Uh, of Haredism, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, now, of all these communities, the two that were most important in terms of what I'm talking about <clears throat> were the two communities in which Jews were not allowed to live. Okay? 
One was Moscow, one was St. Petersburg. Uh, I was in both places in, in uh, 40 years ago. Now, Moscow is Moscow, St. Peter is St. Petersburg. In the time of the Tsars, St. Petersburg was the capital of Russia, not Moscow. Nevertheless, they're both very important centers. And they're, they're Russian. They're not Polish. They're not Ukrainian. They're not Belarusian, Lithuanian, nothing. They're Russia, Russia, Russia. It's the heart of the Russian culture. And in the 1800s, the Russian culture was flowering. I mean, this is when Russia, as a culture, you know, burst into bloom and became part of European culture as a way that it never was before. Just think of, I don't know, Tchaikovsky, Rimsky-Korsakov, uh, Tolstoy. I mean, you know, it's a whole galaxy of names. A galaxy of names. And so the Russian culture was epis. And um, Jews were not allowed to live there except for the exceptions. Let's try the exceptions. The people who had special permission to live there, and this varied in the 1800s, but overall, were the ones who were well-to-do. They're paying more taxes, and they're making significant contributions to the Russian economy. And so, therefore, there were these very, very unusual type of communities in Moscow and and St. Petersburg, were not typical at all, and uh, regular Jews are not allowed to live there, of course, Jews were always sneaking in to live there anywhere, and every once in a while, the Russian police would make a chiska, you know, and round them up and, uh, you know, throw them out and things like that, sometimes in the middle of winter. But this was the, the price of doing business over there. Uh, there's a famous Jewish joke that reflects this. Maybe I said it before, I don't know. That's a classic from that time. And the joke goes like this, that uh, there were two cousins, and one lived in Moscow, and had permission to live there for whatever reason. But the other guy was from regular, you know, Ukraine or someplace like that, and did not have permission to be in Moscow or in Russia at all. And so we'll call it the, 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 the one who has permission is Cousin A, and the one who doesn't have permission is Cousin B. So Cousin B writes to Cousin A and says, I'm going to come to visit you. And Cousin A says, don't come, you're illegal. You know, if you get arrested, you'll be in big trouble. Ah, the heck with it, says Cousin B. I'm, I'll take my chances. And he comes on a train with some kind of a false passport. And when he gets off the train, so the cousin A is greeting him. But sure enough, a Russian policeman, a guard voice, sees him right away and starts walking over to him. Oh boy, now he's in trouble. So cousin A, who has permission, says to cousin B, you freeze and don't move. Don't move. And cousin A starts running away from the cop. You get it? And he runs two, three blocks till the cop catches up with him. And the cop catches up with him and says, oh, you illegal Jew, I caught you. And the guy says, I'm not illegal. Here's my passport. I have the right to live here. If you have the right to live here, says the cop, what do you run away for? He said, I wasn't running. I was doing my daily run and my jogging and my constitutional. Well, when you saw me running after you, why didn't you stop? I thought you had the same jogging schedule. You know, that's the joke. But what does it reflect? The nutty situation where somebody has the right to live there and somebody doesn't have the right to live there. So... Um, now I'm going to concentrate the rest of the, so if we wanted to talk about, uh, who was it? Uh, Rabbi Maza. I think I spoke about him once. So he's all about the Jews in Moscow, which had a certain profile of this type. But the other one would be in St. Petersburg. And therefore the shul, the, the community as it existed and the shul that they created reflected their tastes and their, um, sensibilities. So they're highly atypical of the millions and millions and millions of Jews 
who live in the Tsarist Empire, and Ukraine and Belarus and Lithuania, Latvia and Poland, all the rest of it. These guys have a very distinct profile, and because of the Russian bureaucratic rules, you don't walk into a shoal in a place like St. Petersburg and see regular Amcha. You know, there are no Hasidim there, no, nothing there. Uh, and maybe, actually, there were a very small number of like Lubavitchers and things like this because you had some Lubavs who were like, you know, loaded and had business relations with the government so they could do this. If I remember correctly, I think when the Alter Rebbe was in, in prison in uh, St. Petersburg, he stayed by some, I can't remember if the guy was a Kossad or Misnagat or something like that, but, you know, in other words, there were a few well-to-do Jews there who knew how to negotiate with the government officials. Negotiating with the Tsarist officials is another word for shokhat. I mean, that's that, that's how they do business over there. That's how it was under communism. It was under communism. That's how it's going to be loyal and void. But that's, you know, how life was lived. And so, in St. Petersburg, now to get to Daniel's relatives, so in St. Petersburg, they built a shoal, and um, that's the one you go to today. It's a big fancy shoal. I was there once. And, uh, and let's put it this way. Uh, they wanted, you know, um, to Russianize. These are millionaires or rich people of one kind or another. So they're living in decent houses, maybe big fancy houses. They're making sure that they and their children getting a good education, which means a Russian education. It is a good education in the secular sense. Russian education. Um, Russian education, I mean, Christianity is a very very important part of Russian culture, but there was also, you know, secular tendencies, believe it or not, in the 19th century in Russian culture as well. Uh, Russian culture is a little bit weird because you had the czar and all the rest of it. Uh, these guys, by definition, are going to be, you know, really interested in Haskalah. Uh, they want a, a better Judaism, as they see it, right? They want a Munitzrufa, not a Munitzfela. They don't want to hear they have the, the businessmen's sensibilities, as I said before. They're not interested in the Zohar. They're not interested in Hasidus. They're not interested in, you know, in questions of religious, you know, like Scharva Onesh, you know, none of that kind of stuff. They're very practical. Their idea is to have a well-run synagogue service. You understand? Learning is not for them. Maybe lectures on Jewish subjects may be for them, you know, podcasts. You know, not just Shiurim and things of that nature. Uh, and they're very heavily influenced by what's going on in Germany, all the rest of it. And this shul, uh, it's very interesting, this shul, uh, which was the large one, you know, uh, they're constantly trying to get the government to be mosh of them and all the rest of it. The Tsarist government was thoroughly anti-Semitic, and you never really could get to be mosh But nevertheless, it was better for the Russian government. This was better than the other shuls, you understand? And so it's a very complicated reality. And they had their uh, set of rabbis. Now, Itzla Petterberger was there as the non-crown rabbi, the halachic rabbi. But Itzla Petterberger left because it was, it was a, 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 I did him once, because it was a very bad, it's not the place for a from, for from rabbi. You understand? There were a couple from Jews, but Ruben the Ruben not. And so you have, all through the 1800s and down to the Russian Revolution, this interesting group or stratum, it's a, like a certain type in society, of Russian Jewish richie riches. I'm not talking about the ones who converted. That's another group. And 
money they had. Some of them had money to burn. Uh, and be, and each and the first generation uh, came from a firm background, obviously, but their kids had the the secular and the other education. And these guys wanted to regard themselves as like the leaders of Russian Jewry. They said, "We can speak Russian. We know the government ministers. If there's Xera, we're the ones who can, uh, you know, uh, you know, help be mavatlet." Problem is, by being so Russianized, they themselves end up saying like this: "You know, the government's right in doing this Xera." You see, this was always the problem that the Rabbanim, like Yitzhak Alchon, always had, which is. These guys say, you know, actually, a rabbi should have a secular education. We should have secular subjects in the Jewish haters and things like this. Like, what's wrong with that? So you had to tread very carefully. If you're a rov, you saw Salanter, those guys, to know, you know, how to counter this without coming out openly against them, because then they'll tell on you and they'll say this guy's an obscurantist and he should be arrested and sent to Siberia and something. It was a, it was a very tricky business. If you play your cards right, you can get serious money for yeshivas from some from some of these guys. Uh, I've said many times, if you notice, before the First World War, you didn't have people like the Panavish Arav and those types running around all over the world going to America, whatever, fundraising. After the First World War, you did. Right? After the First World War. Because before the First World War, the money was in Russia. The Chavetz Chaim, people like that, the Netziv, if they wanted money, they got some kind of special permission to go for a short time to Moscow and to, and to St. Petersburg. And if they knew the right people, could be one of these richy riches who, who, who originally went to Yeshiva sometime or other, or whose father did, or something like that, you could hit him up for money. You know, depending on the situation, they, they, they might take care of you. That is how the, you know, Tells and Slobodka and Volozhin, um, uh, of course, I mean, that, that's how they uh, survived, I mean, frankly. Uh, now, the same guy that can give a donation to Slobodka, uh, to Volozhin, uh, can also, and will also give a, a donation for Achan uh, Am and all the Apokorsisha stuff. What's his name was like that? Um, ooh, the T. Who had the T? Uh, sweet Tuchni, uh, Vysotsky, right? You know, in Israel, they still have Vysotsky Teague. There was a guy, yeshiva guy, who left, you know, learned for so and so many years, and then went into the world of business. He learned a Volosian, and then he went into the world of business, and he happened to be a genius in business, and, he, you know, the expression, all the tea in China, he got all the tea in Russia. He drew all the competition under, because I told you, this is the 19th century. It was pure capitalism. He put all the others out of business. And he got all the... He was making money in all the tea in Russia. Think about what I just said. So again, Czarist Empire. So he was loaded buckets. And uh, he still had a soft spot for the from stuff. So he used to give nice contributions to Israel Salanter and people like that. I think he learned by Israel Salanter even. Uh, but he also supported the Haskalah and all this other kind of stuff. You just got to get used to the fact that this was the reality there. So you had a most unusual uh, a community. And um, some of them, of course, were like super non-from. Yalag was there, Yudalev Gordon, the, the most famous poet of the 19th century, uh, who was, I think, the president of Shoal or something like that. And he was super Moscow. 
And let me tell you right now, this guy ate bread and ham on Pesach. I'm, I'm very serious. We have Geisha guests who talk about the fact that they ate by his house, you know, over there. He was like the secretary of the community. And But then again, some from guy was moshing on him and sent him to Siberia or whatever. It's a whole it's a whole long arifas. Uh, 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 so he had a very interesting community. And that's where our hero, uh, Abraham Drapkin, comes in because um, he was he lived from 1844 to 1917. And he's from Mogilev, which is where Daniel's family's from. And so all the Drapkins, I guess, are related. I don't know. Now, the years matter, 1844 to 1917. So 1844 means that when he's growing up, when he's 10, 15 years old, I mean, Mamash coincides with what we're talking about, which is the years of, of Nicholas I, and the big tidal wave of muscilic, um, you know, uh, pressure um, in Russian Empire. So in other words, of 1844, by the time he's 15, 16, 17, he's already 1860s. Now, uh, the, the way it works in Russian history was you had five emperors in the 19th century. You know, it's uh, three Alexanders and two Nicholases. Alex one, Nicholas one, Alex two, Alex three, and Nicholas two. So Nicholas one was a mom's and a half, and he was there for 30 years from 1825 to 1855. He's the one who made the cantonists, the Jewish kids, you know, in the Russian army and all the terrible things that happened over there. And he pushed the Jews to um, secularize or, you know, modernize and that kind of business in a very harsh way. When he died, which is in the Crimean War, see, his son Alexander II took over. Compared to the father, Alexander II was liberal. Now, he wasn't liberal at all, but compared to the father, he was liberal. And only because Bediev, because he said, otherwise the Russian Empire is going to have a revolution. So, for example, he freed the slaves, the serfs, you know, uh, and he stopped kidnapping the Jewish kids and things of that nature. So, in Russia, that's called liberal. And the Jews, you know, especially the class that I'm talking about, really said, you know, now we're going to get real liberalism in Russia, eventually even a democracy and a constitutional government, all the rest of it. Now, you know and I know that never happened, but they believed it, and they wanted to. And because they believed it, there was a big push to introduce aesthetic Judaism, reform Judaism, one type or another, particularly 1860s, 70s. In the 1880s came the pogroms, and the emperor was killed, and a new emperor came, uh, uh, you know, all kind of stuff happened, and and the result was, you know, uh, uh, a certain alienation from the Russian culture. But again, that's too complicated to go into now. So for our point purposes, uh, the shul and the community in St. Peter was very important, because that's where the emperor lived, and that's where the government ministers and all the others lived. Now, there were three rabbis there, in the 1800s. There was Avram Newman, and then there was Abraham Drabkin, and there was Moshe Eisenstadt. Uh, and there's not names you need to know. <laughs> uh, and what's interesting is, uh, I know that Drabkin and Eisenstadt, so our hero, let's concentrate on our hero. He learned in Voloshin. Right? So in those, he knew how to learn. But Voloshin in the 1850s and 60s, these are the peak years of the non-firm pressure in the yeshiva, right? It's not what you think. These are the main years in which 
the cultural pressures to adopt the ways of the European bourgeoisie where I think, it, I would say, at their maximum. Um, later, it was actually different. But 1860s and 70s were big years for pushing, you know, changes and reforms within Yiddishkeit. And if you want all the dirty details, get the uh, book from Lipschitz. You know, what's it called? Zichron Yaakov. You know, the one who was the secretary of Yitzhak Hanan. And, you know, he has all these little, uh, you know, stories and vignettes and details. Because... And there's also a lot that we're trying to, you know, we fight this, but behind the scenes. If you were public, you would get in trouble. It's Russia, after all. You can almost get in trouble. Um, I mean, they could arrest you and send you to Siberia. So everything had to be done very diplomatically and very, uh, and so forth. So here's a guy, Abram Drapkin, from Mogilev. Tell you the truth, I think there's a lot of Chabad over there, so he maybe came from Chassidish family. I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. And uh, he ended up in Volozhny Yeshiva. But then, uh, clearly, he, he you know, uh, he, he had a, a careerism in mind. And he went from the Volozhny Yeshiva to the rabbinical seminary in Vilna. So he went from a super from place to the opposite. Now, how far away is Volozhny from Vilna? They're close. Well, I was there. They're close. And so he went from Volozhny Yeshiva, which is zero Limurichol, to the um, rabbinical uh, seminary in Vilna, which was the one run by the Russian government. And the idea is you get your secular education over there, and then you'll get a smicha from that institution, and the government, and then you're, you're then you can have a career. In other words, then you can be the rabbi in a modern type community, modern type shul. And get some kind of a salary. In other words, the Russian government will, will force the Kahila to pay you a salary. You hear what I just said? And uh, there were certain uh, tasks involved. You kept the record books of the births and deaths and things like that, but whatever. And uh, let's put it this way you know, But in our case, what's interesting is that he wasn't, based on what I see, he wasn't a simple careerist, but it seems. They had a genuine interest in one of the interesting manifestations of Judaism in the 19th century. Uh, I'll say it again, a manifestation of Judaism, and that's the new Jewish scholarship that popped up at that time. The new Jewish type of scholarship, which had a, an interesting run, especially in the 1800s. Here, I have to stop this now and, and, and pick it up. Okay, let me pick this up here. Uh, what I was trying to say is, um, that one of the manifestations of modernity and even middle-class sensibilities in the 19th century was the rise of an alternative form of Jewish scholarship, uh, which went by many names. Traditionally, before that, Jewish scholarship was identical with rabbinic scholarship, Talmudic scholarship, and all that, uh, and all the things that go along with that which means they're fundamentalist. But in the 1800s, totally separate from Reform Judaism and all the stuff I'm talking about, there arose the idea of studying Judaism from a secular academic perspective. It's called the Wissenschaft des Judentums in Germany. It was called the Second Haskola in Central Europe. Different names. And it's what you call today, you know, uh, academic you know, Jewish studies. Right? 
Like if I teach in university, that's part of that. You understand? Academic Jewish studies. It's not coming from fundamentalist, uh, you know, uh, preconceptions because that doesn't work uh, secularly. Uh, so the modern interest in anything other than um, Talmudic scholarship would be, you know, part of this. And in the 1800s, so um, you started to have, for the first time, I'll use the term secular Jewish scholarship, you know, more or less. And uh, it started popping up, especially in Germany and, and the Central Europe in general. You know, the age of Zunz and Steinschneider and uh, Rappaport and all these other guys. If you're interested, I have online somewhere, did years ago, a series on the Haskalah. That was a, a piece of it, because that was the second Haskalah. Um, <coughs> part of these guys were like German university trained people with let's say PhDs and they did like Jewish history and things like that using the modern tools of historical research and the critical tools of historical research some of them were masculine who had no secular education whatsoever but you know on their own became autodidacts and then studied Jewish history you know from their point of view and, 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 and the sources and all the rest of it it's a whole thing by itself. So clearly, Abraham Drapkin was kind of interested because if he was just a careerist, then he would have stopped at the rabbinical seminary in Vilna and gotten his degree and then become a rabbi somewhere. But instead, he went to Germany. Now, at the time he went, if he's born in 1844, so he's going there in 18, I guess late 1860s, early 1870s, something something along those lines. Uh, something along those lines. And uh, let me see here for a second. Yeah. Yeah, he got a scholarship from, from what do you call from the uh, Haskell Society of the Richie Rich Jews in, in what do you call it, in, in uh, St. Petersburg. And uh, so he must have known them, they must have known him. And the bottom line is they said, we'll send you to Germany. Now, where do you go to Germany? Uh, at the time of Talmud, 1871, there were there was a, a, an already existing rabbinical seminary and a brand new one. The Frum one wasn't there yet. Uh, not in a formal way. So um, the Frum one was Hildesheimer, of course. So uh, the main seminary was in Breslau, in eastern Germany, now it's part of Poland. Bresa was a long-standing Jewish community, and that's where the conservatives started. So in other words, uh, Zechariah Frankel, who was a big rabbi in Germany, who, you know, was, <laughs> you know, there's always a question, are you left-wing Orthodox or right-wing Reform? You know, that was always the question. Uh, a little bit like some of these Kobe situations. So the... The uh, Tachayi Frank was a great uh, Talmud Chacham. He was. He was actually a nephew of the Ronsberg, you know. And uh, he was from Prague. He also had a PhD, I think, from the University of Budapest, even though Budapest was not a good university at that time. But nevertheless, he had the, uh, the scholarship. And he was a big macher in what we would call today the Wissenschaft des Judentums, you know, the secular uh, academic Jewish scholarship. Although very much with a rabbinical twist. So he studied and wrote a lot on uh, uh, the history of the Mishnah, later history of Yushalmi, and a lot of other types of subjects. Uh, 
And again, see, he was a very well-known scholar, aside from being a rabbi. Sam Sreve the Hirsch, boy, he went after him in the tooth and nail. But a lot of people didn't agree with Hirsch, and they thought, you know, Frankel's a big guy. Also, so Frankel started the Jewish Theological Seminary in the 1850s. By the 1860s, it was up and running. And uh, and he had, by the way, a pretty strong Gemara program. I remember seeing somebody smicha from Frank from the Jewish Theological Seminary, Breslau. I forget, he says, oh, the guy took Bechinas on, uh, you know, all the Mesechtas, you know what I mean? It's all the things you see in Yeshivas. You know what I mean? Getting Kedushin, Yavamas, Ksubas, and, and the Baba, all the three Babas, and I don't know, all, all, and Brachas, and Shabbos. It was, a, it, was, it was not a light program, let's put it that way. And his number two guy in seminary was Heinrich Gretz, the famous historian. Again, a former student of Hirsch, but then Hirsch went after him, uh, you know, tooth and, and nail. Okay? Tooth and nail. So, uh, these were the considered the main places to go in the 1860s and 70s if you wanted to get a seminary Jewish education at a high level. Not like the thing in Vilna or whatever, which everybody was junk. This is like a hush of serious place. And I would say the main emphasis would be on the historical dimension of Jewish history, and uh, in German, obviously, and also understanding the Gemara and everything historically. That's what I would say. So he was there in the 1870s. Uh, he obviously went to the university and all the rest of it. And so, um, I guess it was four or five years. And when he finished, the community that paid for him to have that education took him as the rabbi. So they wanted somebody with a PhD, I guess, and with a solid Jewish education in the, in the sense of Judaism I'm talking about. So they don't need somebody who's going to give a Shabbos Agodal speech on alumnus. But on the other hand, they would like to go to a history lecture or a poetry lecture, that kind of stuff. The kind of things that people do today in podcasts, you know, right? Um, that they would go for. So in other words, they're attempting to uh, recast what's considered Jewish uh, in Russia. And I repeat, this is a community that you know, is unusual. Nobody's allowed to live there except a few. And uh, nobody can tell them what to do. And so the result was that he was a rabbi for 30 years, something like that, maybe more, uh, in this Kehillah. And uh, I don't remember him giving a lot of trouble to the front, to tell you the truth. Uh, when he left, there was a whole question of, should should he get Rav Tzai or Chernowitz if he should be the chief rabbi in the, in the Russia? She was all came to the same person and said, don't do that. This guy, Jabkin, seems to me to have been pretty harmless. He, you know, they said, I like guess, we'll have a shul. Now, they did have an organ, even though they didn't want to admit it. And they did have a choir. I don't know if it was a mixed choir now, but probably it was. And uh, it's not, if you don't like it, don't go down there. You know, there were, there were smaller mignonim and things like that, a few. But if you want the main shul, which is the big shul today, uh, then, you know, that's what it was. Then you're coming for uh, what what we would call a reformed service. Not reform, which is a hashkafa thing, but reformed. The, 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 the service was, uh, was uh, more aesthetic. And I want to tell you, I've talked about this before. This is a movement that swept the world. 
You had this in Italy, you had this in, in the Bohemia, and believe it or not, the people regarded themselves as orthodox, in, or traditional at least, in one way or the other. They're just touching up and fixing up things. And you tell me, I guess, oh, but you're violating a mugging of rum and this, that, and the other. Eh, that's, those words don't mean anything to them. You get it? You, you're talking about a different sensibility. They want a place that looks nice and dignified and all the rest of it. And because it was Russia, so um, you, you had some people in the, in the show who were Shomer Shabbos, uh, like Baron David Gunsberg and others. Uh, why they would daven there if you Shomer Shabbos? I don't know. I'm trying to tell you, it was the times. It was the place. Now, uh, so that's who Abraham Drabkin was. Uh, I don't know if he left a big mark or anything like this. Now, in his day, and this is what the community wanted, he lived at the time of uh, 1870s, 80s, 90s. Well, what happened in the early 1880s? The Tsar Alexander II was assassinated. A huge wave of pogroms swept Russia. Uh, the uh, southern Russia. It was terrible. And... Uh, the new emperor was all in favor of the pogroms, even though he couldn't say it out loud. And the prime minister was Count Ignatiev, who was a famous momser and a half. And uh, our hero did go with the leaders of the St. Petersburg community to plead with the Tsar and his ministers to stop the pogroms. Okay? Uh, and they did denounce anti-Semitism. So... In their way, they tried to help. In the screwball way, they were somewhat effective. Um, because Drapkin and, and, and Baron Gunsberg, who was the richest of the Jews in St. Petersburg, they said to the Tsar and to his minister, Count Ignatyev, that, you know, listen, if the people get used to uh, breaking the law by killing the Jews, what's going to stop them from making a revolution? Once you get used to breaking the law, you break the law. And, you know, even though they won't admit it, the guy himself goes, hmm, that's a good point. And so they stopped the the uh, the, the, the riots, which they could have stopped any time. I remember in, in in Odessa, they wanted to stop the riots. Everybody was running crazy. The peasants were drunk and all the rest. And they took one guy, like in the movies, they tied him to two spears and they tore him in half. By a shokuha, that was the end of the program. Everybody went home. All of a sudden, the uncontrollable crowds were controllable. Uh, so this, it's that mahalach of, you know, trying to be mishtadlonim, as it were. And uh, Rabbi Zegel was 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 part of that, although he did other things. I've talked about it on other occasions as well. It's a, it's a whole complicated story. In the end, these guys wanted, first of all, that Russia become democratic. Well, that's not going to happen. Second of all, that the, that the czarist government shouldn't make so many gzeras constantly against the Jews. That also wasn't going to happen. Instead, what Count Ignatiev said and his successors was, why don't the Jews move to America? That's a good idea. As he put it, the door to the West is always open. So instead of solving the problem by fixing the system, they solved the problem by emigration. That's many of you who are listening to me now, your great-great-grandparents, whatever it is, that's how they got out of Russia after the pogroms when the government said, well, let you go. You see, the czarist government was the opposite of communists. The communists said, nobody can leave. It was an iron curtain. Russia, they always said, Vakasha, you want to move? Please do. And millions of Jews 
I would say two or three million, left Russia in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, and so forth, down to the First World War and a little bit afterwards. Millions, first of all to the USA, but also many to countries like England and France and South Africa and and uh, Argentina and I don't know, you know, all kind of places like that. So it's not only America, you know, you know what I'm saying? And uh, these were the ones who survived Hitler, obviously. Now, as you see, the Yad Hashem, the several million cut out of there just before the, the, the Holocaust hit. Now, um, you know, I don't know how that works, but that's what happened. And you see over here that uh, the, the, the the policy of uh, being Stadlonim and trying to help and this and that and the other was of limited uh, 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 value. Uh, because he could speak Russian, you know, so he gave sermons in Russian, so the Russians liked that. And that way the Balabantin can say, oh, see, we're very patriotic. And they hope by showing that they're very patriotic, they'll win favor from the czars. But the last two czars, Alexander III and Nicholas II, were so far bisina onto submitting, it's, it's hard to explain to people. You know, uh, they, they simply hated Jews. So there was nothing a Jew could do other than convert that would would gain their favor. It just wasn't in the cards. This is why the revolution broke out. The, the, the government would not change. You understand? So I'm talking about the Jewish part, but they weren't changed by the Gaussian part either. Eventually led to the overthrow of the whole monarchy. Uh, so here comes the funny part. And that is, uh, because, you know, Drabkin went to the coronation of Nicholas II, it doesn't matter. I'll say one thing. He did defend, how should I put it? Uh, there was a move in the 1880s, uh, 1890s, to Asr Brismila, which goes back to the time of Hadrian, you know, that's a barbaric and it's bad health and so on and so forth. And uh, Drabkin was one of the people, you know, on the government commissions that he said, don't don't go and and, and uh, make a gzair against Brismila. I mean, Russia was a nutty place. What can I tell you? You know? It was a nutty place. Uh, now comes the funny part. And that is, you know, he was there till the, uh, somewhere in the early 1900s. I know he died in 1917, but I think he was already retired before that. Uh, after all, he was born in 1844, so do the numbers. By uh, 1904, he's 60, right? By 1914, he's already 70. You know, he, he obviously retired in one of those years. And the guy who came after him also was a former Talmud of, of Elijah. You know, that, that's how it went. You know, you had X number of careerists. That's how, that, that's, that's how it, it worked. Uh, and I'll tell you again, you had real, you know, they really couldn't stand the Orthodox. But okay, uh, what happened eventually? You and I know that came the Russian Revolution, the communists took over. The communists were not really interested in reforming Judaism all the rest of it. It's not 100% true. Uh, in the twenties, there was all kind of things where, still, you know, the, especially in Saint Petersburg, which became Leningrad, of course, there were those who wanted to push more reforms, thinking that that would please the communist government. That's too complicated to go into now. I'll just, I'll simply say the guy who fought against that was Lubavitch Rebbe. No surprise. Uh, but it was a it was a weird time. Eventually, Stalin really took over, and under Stalinism, they weren't interested in any kind of reform. Nothing. They wanted the Jews all, Judaism all gone. For whatever reason, 
the Russian government, the Soviet government, didn't totally wipe out, uh, you know, Judaism, only 99%. And so the shul remained in St. Petersburg, and the shul remained in Moscow and a few other places like that, uh, especially, you know, with, with the Holocaust and all the rest of it. The element of Jews who were interested in this kind of thing were eradicated by the Russian Revolution. That's my point. Uh, everything I talked about had to do with well-to-do Balabatim who have this bourgeois sens- sensibility. <coughs> they want a Judaism that makes sense to them, that is aesthetic to them. They don't care about the halakhic niceties of the whole business. It's not what moves them. I knew people like this in Baltimore also. I knew some, or used to. And, um, you know, and and they're pretty set in their ways. This is the group that wants the aesthetics and all the rest of it. The, um, the Balbatim uh, that I'm talking about were destroyed by the communist revolution. That's exactly what Lenin and the Marxists were all about. It was one big attack on... Um, the bourgeoisie. That's what Karl Marx is. The enemy is the bourgeoisie. Read the, you know, Marx's, Marx's writings. According to Karl Marx, you know, religion is nothing but a tool of exploitation by the bourgeoisie. So therefore, when the communists take over, they're not interested in making a, a better reformed Judaism or something like this, or a more aesthetic synagogue. The whole idea of a show altogether, religion altogether, is like a negative, you understand? So that entire sensibility was wiped away, and the people were eradicated. And whoever in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, who tried to keep up whatever Yiddish guy they can, and you got to take your hat off to these people. I don't say that they were Shamashavs because you ha- it was in Russia, you couldn't help it. But to the degree that they were able to do anything, they tried their best. You know, to keep a show going or things like that. You know, they 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 tried their best. Uh, it's sad. I knew a guy in Baltimore. He died long ago. He was a uh, he came over here in the eighties, I guess, or something like that, nineties. And he was a uh, a Litvak from I think Vilna actually. And this is a sad story. What I'm gonna say? Maybe I told it before. At that time, the Soviets had one Jewish newspaper called Sovetische Heimland, and it was in Yiddish and in Russian Yiddish meaning an anti-from Yiddish. Notice M is spelled not Aleph Mem Sof, but Ayin Mem Ayin Samach, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, and it was pure, the content was pure Soviet propaganda. They used to get it here in the in the Hebrew College, you can read it. It's There's nothing in it Jewish whatsoever, zero. But the ICS are Jewish letters. Uh, that's called Soviet uh, Yiddish. And um, what do you call it? And that's the only Jewish thing they had. So these guys, this guy told me he and his buddies, none of them were from, used to go to the kiosk and buy, you know, the uh, buy the issues when they came out, purchase them, because otherwise the government will say there's no interest in it whatsoever. Let's close it down. They didn't want to close down the last little nakuda of Judaism, and therefore they would buy all the empty issues, you know, all, all the other issues to show that. Uh, you know, there's still some kind of a Jewish interest in this uh, publication. Uh, it's bizarre. 
it's it, you know it's a pentlegit of a of a weird type, which was the Soviet reality. Um, the Soviet reality is very different than the nineteenth century reality when Drapkin was operating. It's, it's just very different, and uh, whoever labored to keep up the Yiddishkeit was somebody who had to fit in the Soviet system, not rock the boat too much, but persistently, very uh, respectfully, very persistently, you know, push. Let, let me have a shul, let me have a cemetery, let me, uh, or whatever they were able to get, let me, shechita, to the degree that they were able to do it. No, don't look too closely how conformant it was to everything Jewish. I think when I was there, they had a microphone in, in, in Leningrad, if I remember correctly, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't push these things too closely because of the circumstances under which, but the idea of, of an aesthetic reform Judaism was, was not up for discussion. Uh, ever since the Soviet Union uh, fell down, so it's just interesting, Putin likes the Chabad because he has a, uh, I would say, a uh, Slavic sensibility. In Russia, there's always a machlug in the 19th century, should Russia turn to the West or turn to the East? And the pan-Slavs, as they call them, said true Russia should turn to the East. The Russian Orthodox Church with the long beards and all the rest of the Lubavitch look like that a little bit, so there's a, uh, I mean, I think Putin has actually said, he says, the only real Jews are like the Chabad or the, or those types which take things seriously. But that's very unusual. It's unique in, in, in Russian history. And I don't follow these things so closely, but I believe there's some kind of reform Judaism or, or that kind of element uh, in, in, in Russia today, in uh, Moscow and, and, and St. Petersburg. I don't know you know, how lively they are or anything like that, how active, but, uh, but what do you call it? But, uh, you know, it reflects a certain uh, interest group. Uh, most of the Jews have left Russia today. Uh, There's probably 100,000 left altogether, uh, altogether. Uh, maybe not even that, which is amazing. Uh, let's put it this way. That being the case, so, uh, you know, I don't think the future in Russia, if there is any future, you're going to have any kind of reform thing. But there will always be a few people intermarried, whatever, they go for that sort of thing. There are a couple of yeshivas and everything over there. Uh, that's the one that's going to have any kind of a kiyom, I would assume. But uh, our hero today reflects there for an episode in when the bourgeois Jews in Russia dreamed of a time where Russia would turn in a different direction, not have a revolution, not have communism, but instead evolve into something like England or France or a place like that. And then the Judaism that they would be pushing, they would try to shove as much as possible. And it would have been an interesting story similar to what's happened in the West, where it's been just, you know, push and pull between the from and the not from. Um, and, you know, the, the dynamics are what they are. Uh, but this was an episode. It was actually destroyed, as they say, by the Russian Revolution, which which was not foreseen. And therefore, you know, it's studied today primarily by historians. I went lo- a lot longer than this than I wanted to, but Daniel, that's who I think Drapkin was. Uh, anyway, with that, I bid you all a good day. And I guess today's Thursday, so today's Rosh Chodesh Think about that.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.